Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, Would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Friday, November 15th, 2013. Got a lot of loose ends I gotta tie up. (laughs) It's gonna take me weeks to tie those all up. I feel like I have like several loose ends programs that I need to, uh get to today and tomorrow and next week (laughs) thank you for tuning in you're listening to fighting for the faith my name is chris roseboro i am your servant in jesus christ and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment the goal of which help you to think biblically help you to think critically and help you compare what people are saying in the name of god to the word of god sadly no shortage of crazy things being said out there Uh, People ripping verses out of context, just making up their own doctrine, claiming to be receiving direct revelation from God, the Holy Spirit. Um, All the while, they're twisting God's word so badly, it makes you wonder why God, the Holy Spirit, isn't saying, Hey, um, here's my next message to you. Stop twisting my word and repent of your false doctrine. I mean, if they were really hearing from God, the Holy Spirit, wouldn't he do that? (sighs) Anyway... So let's talk about what we're going to do on today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. There are several things that I need to get to today. Number one, we'll start off with a Patricia King update. Uh, What we'll do is we'll head down to uh, Arizona, home of uh, Patricia King, and we'll listen to a personal coaching session. Uh, (laughs) Coached into Acceleration is the name of the video with Patricia King. And um, are you looking for a spiritual acceleration in your life? I mean, I <laughs> hear something like that and I think, what is spiritual acceleration? I mean, I know what acceleration is when I'm in my vehicle. I know what ex- acceleration is when I'm sitting on an airplane on the tarmac getting ready to take off. I know what acceleration is. Um when it t- comes to that, but what on earth is spiritual acceleration? So we're going to be listening to Patricia King in a kind of a one-on-one, mano-a-mano uh, <laughs> life coaching session where you're going to learn some important principles regarding being uh, coached into spiritual acceleration. <laughs> no joke. No joke. Okay, then we'll switch gears, and we're going to do... Kind of an evolution update, but not really. I'm going to cheat, and I'm going to use our uh, Monkey's Uncle update music for this. And uh, somebody sent me a link to (laughs) a conversation between the theoretical physicist Lawrence Krauss and Peter Rawlins of the Emergent Church. (laughs) And I got to tell you, that was just sheer entertainment. 
Um, of course, Peter Rollins is a regular feature here at Fighting for the Faith. Uh, he's one of the guys who's a part of the emergent church. And, uh, you know, of course, Brian McLaren speaks glowingly of him. He's uh, He has uh, <clears throat> spoken at, preached at, if you want to call it that, um, Mars Hill, which would be... Uh, uh, Rob Bell's uh, old church, but uh, while he's he's preached there while uh, Rob Bell was there, he did a preaching thing with Rob Bell. And since Rob Bell has left Mars Hill, Peter Rollins has recently preached there. In fact, we reviewed a sermon preached by Peter Rollins at Mars Hill. That the name of the sermon was just Peter Rollins. And um, oh, if you've li- if you've heard him before, and you know if you haven't, go back and listen to the archives of Fighting for the Faith. Just type in Peter Rollins, two L's there in the middle, and and you'll understand what I'm talking about. Peter Rollins doesn't make a wink of sense. Um, you know, he's one of these guys that I, my fear is that post modernity has somehow given given him um, kind of a an involuntary lobotomy. I mean, lucid, coherent thinking just doesn't work with somebody like Peter Rollins, and he's given up any pretense of biblically preaching. I mean, who knows what he actually believes, because that's not what he talks about. This is the guy who, earlier in the year, suggested that Christians... um, Give up theism and embrace atheism for Lent, and you know. And so, anyway, I'm, I'm. You got that kind of paints the picture. So, Peter Rollins sharing the dais in Sydney, Australia, at the Sydney Opera House, uh, where for their what Dangerous uh, Thoughts 2013 conference, um, and um, or Dangerous Thinkers. I forget the name of the conference, but anyway. Um, so he's supposed to have a meaningful dialogue with theoretical physicist Lawrence Krauss, who, who's written the uh, the book about uh, the universe coming from nothing, and <laughs> co-authored with uh, Richard Dawkins. So uh, you know, technically, uh, the, uh, people put uh, Lawrence Krauss into that whole um, new atheism movement, and watching <laughs> watching Lawrence <laughs> Krauss's reaction to Peter Rollins was. Absolutely, just comedy gold, and so I, I, I was tempted to do a, an emergent church update and play for you sound bites of Peter Rollins. But then I thought, you know what? The, you know, Lawrence Krauss also poses a significant threat to Christianity. Um, you know, in the form of new atheism, and I thought, you know, maybe it would be better. If we went after Lawrence Krauss first and maybe, you know, in a future segment of Fighting for the Faith played for you some of the things that Peter Rollins said that uh, caused Lawrence Krauss to just literally just, you know, (laughs) hold up his hands and complete like, I don't know what to do with this. This isn't even lucid thinking kind of thing. So, uh, So what we'll do is we'll do a science update and I want to get at... Um, you know, how scientists cheat. Somebody like Lawrence Krauss, he cheats. And I'll explain that uh, when we uh, do the segment. Then we'll take a break and we'll do our second uh, segment of debunking uh, the History Channel's latest you know, hit piece on the Bible, uh, you know, Secrets of the Bible Revealed. And uh, we'll take a look at, at some of their breathtaking arguments against you know the bible i mean you know it, it after watching this i mean every christian needs to put their bible down and and wave the white flag <laughs> it's like no I, yeah it's just oh man and then to end the week we're gonna listen to two good sermons two great sermons both from faith lutheran church in capistrano beach we have a um 
Pastor Hodel sermon and a Jeremy Rohde sermon. I will feature Jeremy Rohde twice this week to to end off the week on a good note. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, and there's no theme today. The today's stuff is like all over the map. And by the way, thank you for the suggestions for the update music for Kenneth Copeland, as well as for the secrets of the Bible revealed. We've actually come. Uh, I've narrowed it down. I'll reveal uh, what the update music is for the our, our future secrets of the Bible revealed segment. But um, anyway, so thank you for the suggestions. I have picked out, at least uh, for the Secrets of the Bible Revealed segments, uh, what the music is going to be. Still haven't picked a winner for the Kenneth Copeland updates, but uh, keep those coming. Uh, Great suggestions. So we're going to dive into the program proper. Please take all of the proper safety precautions. Uh, What you're going to hear, it could be threatening to your very health and well-being, but uh, as well spiritual well-being. But uh, let's do this right. Here we go. So do you need to be coached into spiritual acceleration? Yeah, I have no idea what that means. Um, (laughs) Here is um, Patricia King explaining to us kind of in what she likens as like a a one-on-one special coaching segment with her. Uh, she wants you to imagine that you are you and her are having a private coaching section where a segment where I don't know what it is is where she's going to actually coach you into spiritual acceleration. Again, I have no clue what spiritual acceleration is. Just like I have no idea what an Issachar is. Um, and the weird thing is, is I you know I've been a Christian for <laughs> decades now. You know, decades since I was a kid. And I and I'm in my mid 40s and I've never heard of spiritual acceleration. So here's Patricia King to coach you into spiritual acceleration. Here we go. Well, hello there. I'm glad that you've joined me today because I want to coach you into spiritual acceleration. And so you can kind of maybe have it in your mind that it's just you and me and we'll have a little coaching session here. Okay, I, I, I'm i in. Can't wait to be coached into spiritual acceleration. Can I? Do I need to come up with a baseline measurement of my current spiritual... Uh, what would the speed it would be that be the right metaphor what you know what is my current you know speed at which i'm um spiritual at and then you know so i come up with a baseline then i can see improvement by you know coming up with an objective measure of you know me now accelerating my spiritualness i again i i'm just grabbing at straws here but okay patricia let's go with our one-on-one coaching session uh, it's such a pl- privilege to be coached by you one-on-one like this. I love uh, life coaching. I'm a, a credentialed life coach. and I really Yeah, I've, I've heard you say that before. I really enjoy helping people reach their goals. And I've discovered that a lot of people's desire when they share their heart with me is not really for business fulfillment. It's not always for even relationship fulfillment or, or um, different dreams that they have in those areas. But it's for spiritual acceleration. Really, you have a lot of your private one-on-one life coaching clientele saying, you know, Patricia, I've been, you know, I'm so glad I'm I'm paying the money now for a personal life coach. And, um, you know, now that I've, you know, I've got you as my personal life coach, the thing that I've really been struggling with, not my weight, although I've been struggling with my weight, not my marriage, you know, none of that, you know, or my happiness in my career. I've been really suffering from lack of spiritual acceleration. Can you help me with that? So you really have had 
clients in your life coaching business say to you, I really need the keys to experiencing spiritual acceleration. Okay. And so I actually did a whole course called Coached into Spiritual Acceleration. So I want to share some of those insights with you today. Now, I feel like prophetically, God is doing something in this hour that is so awesome. And in these coming days, we're going to truly see a convergence between heaven and earth. We're going to see the mind and the will of God manifest through his people in the earth. We'll see the supernatural abilities of God manifest in his people in the earth. In fact, you know, you've been saying this since I've been on radio and I still have yet to see any of these things that you say prophetically are about to happen actually break out and start happening. Is there like an expiration date on that prophecy? You know, like when we see in the Bible where where Israel was going through the wilderness when they came out of Egypt there they were walking with God in the wilderness where where the heavens were open and manna was coming down and they were getting everything that they needed direct from God and they were seeing his goodness everywhere they went what they never grasped though was what he could do through them if they had have believed but in these last days where the spirit's being poured out the scripture says the latter glory of the house is greater than the former. Your end days are going to be greater than anything that's ever happened to you. My end days. Um, have you been to like a retirement community? Um, I've seen, you know, uh, the people who've preceded me and the generations ahead of me. And, hmm, you know, um, my end days, if it's going to look anything like that, probably not going to be better than, you know, the former. You know what I'm saying? up until this time. And so I'm excited to share some principles with you. So you might even want to get your Bibles. You might want to get your notebooks out or get your computer and start taking notes because I want to share some insights with you today that I think are going to be life transforming and help you tremendously. Now, I need to make a suggestion. If you're going to take notes on this next portion of this uh, life coaching that you're going to get from Patricia King on how to experience spiritual acceleration, be sure to take the notes on a computer or a tablet device. Uh, the reason being is, is because I wouldn't actually want you to waste paper for for these notes. Um, you know, with with you know, there's no there's no money wasted. There's no re- no trees are going to die if you take notes on on your computer. You, you know what I'm saying? Grow in God. In fact, I'm I'm just sensing that there's someone watching right now that you're saying, oh, I've just felt like I'm in such a rut. I want to accelerate, but I don't have the keys. I don't know how to go to that next step in God. And so I'm here for you today so that you can get some keys and and receive Holy Spirit's power, receive some light, receive some revelation to help you. Now, the first uh, point I'd like to talk about is uh, concerning a little word, a really little word. And the word is with, W-I-T-H, with. And I know that... You want me to take notes and write down the word with. Oh, yeah, this is deep. That might seem kind of insignificant. You might think, what with? But what I want to talk about is walking with God, because that's what's going to accelerate you when you understand that everything you do, whether it is going shopping or making your dinner or going to the workplace or repairing an engine in a car, whatever it is, that you can do everything that you do with God. And Adam and Eve, they understood that. In fact, in Genesis chapter 1, 
1 through 3, we see God not only creating the world and creating Adam and Eve, creating mankind, but we saw that he had fellowship, relationship with them, where he would walk with them in the garden. So that everything that they did until the fall was done with God. But after they fell, they felt this alienation from him. But their key to living in the glory... to li- They felt alienation... <laughs> Yeah, it was a little more than that. I mean, God kicked him out of the garden and put an, you know, put an angel to guard the, uh, you know, the tree of life. Uh, the thing, that uh, angel was uh, carrying a flaming sword. Um, yeah, alienation. I'm sure they felt it, but it was a little bit more than just a feeling. You know what I mean? Living in fullness to living with God was to walk with God in everything that they did. To 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 track with Him, to think with Him, to discuss with Him, to to live their life with Him. And God wants to invite you to live your life with Him in everything that you do. Don't exclude Him from anything. Uh huh. So if in order to experience spiritual acceleration the i need to understand the depths of the word with and the word with when i looked it up in a dictionary it means to be together with to be together with god (laughs) no really to be near to to be near to god to be in relationship with or to be in the same place you know god is in the same place with you all the time And just acknowledging this really can accelerate your growth. Now, Enoch in the Bible, in Genesis 5.24, we read in the scriptures that it says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So Enoch's, you know, secret, I guess, for, for going into the fullness of the glory realm, for like even leaving kind of the, the essence of this natural realm into God's glory realm was to simply walk with God. It says he walked with God so much so that he was not. I love this story. Uh, okay. Yeah. There's no, Enoch's secret wasn't the word with, um, you know, let me give you a biblical text here. Hebrews 11, verse 4. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, he died. Even though he died, he still speaks. By faith, there it is, by faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God, and without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to him must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. Right, so Hebrews 11 tells us that uh, Enoch's big secret, and it wasn't a secret at all, because it's right there in the Word of God in black and white for anybody to read, was that he had faith. Uh huh. Faith. Yeah. Uh, Patricia apparently doesn't read her Bible. Of um, Brother Lawrence, because he was practicing the presence of God, and um, you know, you uh, wait a second. <laughs> Gotta back that up. That's like throwing a whale on the table. Brother Lawrence, because he was. Uh, let me back it up just a little bit more. Here um, we go. Was to simply walk with God. It says he walked with God, so much so that he was not. I love the story of um, Brother Lawrence because he was practicing the presence of God. And, um, you know, you. Brother Lawrence, the Roman Catholic mystic, was practicing the presence of God. Where in the Bible does it teach us to practice the presence of God? I 
have no idea what it means to practice God's presence. I mean, God is present. I mean, he's om, um, omniscient, omnipresent. Um, what does it mean to practice God's presence? And where does the Bible tell us to do that? Oh, by the way, it doesn't. And read about that in that book, Practicing the Presence. And, you know, he would just discipline himself to think about God and to do everything with God. He was a monk in a monastery and he had to do a lot of mundane chores. But no matter what he did, if it was sweeping the floors or the walkways or doing dishes, whatever he did, he would just consciously be aware that he was doing it with God, that God was with him. Well, as a result of that focus alone, so much presence came around him that people would come from miles around to watch him wash dishes in the monastery because the weight of the presence of God was so tremendous because he had focused on washing dishes with God or walking with God, living with God. Talk- mm-hmm. And we're talking about a guy who in this, who's in a monastery. What does that tell you about his theology? He's a Roman Catholic mystic. You know, why should I believe that the presence of God was around Brother Lawrence when his theology is completely, uh, well, contrary uh, to the theology of Scripture? with God, that it created this realm of glory around him that other people would come into the presence and just stand in awe. And God wants to do that through you. You can accelerate. Mm-hmm. And where in the Bible does it say, I can do that and God wants to accelerate? And where does the practicing of the presence of God come in again in the Bible? You can move into that kind of, of uh, place. I believe the day's going to... No, listen, really, I, I don't want to move into that kind of place because it would really bother me. If, you know, like when I was like mowing the lawn, you know, people started gathering around me to watch me mow the lawn because of some drippy presence thing, a glory thing that was supposedly around me while I was mowing the lawn. I mean, number one, it's a legal liability. Like if I run over somebody's foot and I cut their toes off, I mean, that's going to be an insurance nightmare. Um, And I like when I'm mowing my lawn to be left alone. I mean, I don't want people just show. I said, well, I don't really want this kind of acceleration. It just doesn't sound like anything that would really benefit me and actually would be kind of a distraction and somewhat obnoxious. Come where we're going to have so much connection with God because we walk with him. The, our energy will not be human energy. We'll have supernatural energy to accomplish everything he's called us to do. We might not even need to eat because man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds. Out of- Notice it says by bread alone, uh, by bread alone. It did, yes. <laughs> the mouth of God. So we can live off the proceeding word. Now, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you just go out and stop eating or anything like that. I'm not saying that you should fast. I'm just saying that the day might come where we're so connected with God that uh-huh. we walk so much with him that, that there's nothing in the earth that we need because we're living in that realm with him. Yeah, I don't want that kind of acceleration. I really like food. I mean, I like it a lot. So I'll pass. Oh, man. Now, over and again, I ha- I make this point, and I'll make it again. What does this kind of teaching do? It totally takes your eyes off of Christ and what he's done for you, takes your nose out of your Bible so that you're actually reading what God has revealed in his written word. All scripture is God-breathed. And so you're no longer being trained and instruction- instructed in sound doctrine. You're chasing after complete nonsense you're 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 cha- it's you're chasing after some spiritual experience you know looking for the next wave of the spirit to crest so that you can surf it in 
And this is not Christianity. This is something completely different. You don't need spiritual acceleration. You need repentance, and you need faith in Christ, and you need to be reading your Bible so that you rightly understand what God has revealed there for you, for your instruction, for your building up, for your training in righteousness, and equipping for the for what God has called you to do. But you don't need this. You don't need to be coached into spiritual acceleration. I mean, the category doesn't even make any sense. It's like the sentence, blue sleeps faster than Tuesday. Yeah, it's got a noun and it's got a verb, but not. it's nonsense. Spiritual acceleration, it's the same kind of concept. It's just nonsense. Ah, you get what I'm saying. All right, we are up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break, and we come back. We got a science update, which should be interesting, as well as our second segment on debunking the claims of the Bible secrets revealed from the uh, History Channel. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> it's Marty Python's Flying Circus Church. for downloading Rob Bell's Lectio Divina. This is a resource made available by Mars Hill Bible Church in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Lectio Divina is an ancient spiritual practice from the Christian monastic tradition, and in Lectio Divina we seek to experience the presence of God through reading and listening, prayer, meditation, and contemplation. Lectio Divina can be done as an individual or a group. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I guess I am. All right. Begin by choosing a section of scripture that you would like to read and pray. You can choose the text randomly, or use a liturgical book like the Book of Common Prayer. Try not to set a goal for how much content you will cover. The goal is to listen for and experience God and His presence. Um, I guess I'll go randomly then. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Catch a scripture by its toe. If it's gospel, let it go. Eeny, meeny, miny, moe. Preparation for Lectio Divina. Next, do what you must to quiet and prepare yourself to hear from God. If you need to find a quiet room or sit in silence for several minutes or sit in a comfy chair, take whatever posture will help you prepare to receive and experience God's presence. Okay, let's see. I've got my comfy chair and... Oh, no. You out there! How am I supposed to experience the presence of God if you are using a jackhammer? Shut up! Don't feel sorry about that, ma'am. Yeah, you better be sorry! Next, 
When you sense that your heart is prepared, begin by slowly reading the passage of Scripture that you have selected. Don't move too quickly through any sentence or phrase, and as you read, pay attention to what word or phrase or idea catches your attention. Okay, I don't know when I'm supposed to be ready. There's no, there's no kind of timer on me. Anyway, um, the passage of Scripture. Judas hung him, himself. Judas hung himself. Judas hung himself. Next, begin to meditate on the word, phrase, or idea that captured your attention. Repeat it again and again. Hung himself. Hung himself. Hung himself. What thoughts come to mind as you meditate on this word, phrase, or idea? Suicide? What are you reminded of in your life? Um, an early death? What does it make you hope for? A different passage of scripture? Next, begin to speak to God. Tell God what word, phrase, or idea captured your attention and what came to mind as you meditated upon it. Lord, the phrase was, Judas hung himself. It's not a good feeling. How is God using this word, phrase, or idea to bless and transform you? How should I know that? Tell God what you have been thinking and feeling as you've listened and meditated. I'm feeling depressed. Tell God how you hope this word, phrase, or idea will change your heart to be more like his. This is rubbish! A complete waste of my time! I could be out trimming the petunias or burying the cat or something! If I'm going to experience God, I'm going to do it the old-fashioned way! Just open the Bible and read it! Don't be so silly and modern. Everybody knows that you can't experience God that way. Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Roseborough here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, try to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted two tin cans and a string. It's one of those communicated devicey thingies. Now you can talk to your friends of a long... Ow. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about Think Geek, 
At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Warning, trying to chase the latest wave of the glory spirit movement thing um, takes your eyes off Jesus. Very dangerous stuff. You don't want to get caught up with folks like that. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month. That's it, to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you can do so. So by clicking on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. We cannot keep doing what we are doing without it. Moving along. Uh-huh, she loves a monkey, sucker, oh, yeah. yeah. She loves the monkey's uncle, whoa, whoa. She loves the monkey's uncle. And the monkey's uncle, they for me. Well, I don't care what the whole world thinks. She loves the monkey's uncle. Call us a couple of missing links. She loves the monkey's uncle. Rub all his monkey shines. Every day is Valentine's. I love the monkey's uncle and the monkey's uncle, they for me. For me. Yeah, that's right. That's our uh, normally that's our biologus update music, but we're gonna use it for a generic science update if update if you would today. All right, yeah, that's right. It's fun you know, hearing Annette Funicello. Anyway, okay, so to kind of I've already sort of set this up. What we're gonna be listening to today is is Lawrence Krauss. He is a theoretical physicist. And there was a um, – in Sydney, Australia, there, it's, it's called the Festival of Dangerous Ideas. Festival of Dangerous Ideas. It was held just a couple of weeks ago at the Sydney Opera House. And they <laughs> invited Lawrence Krauss, the theoretical physicist and new atheist, um, to have a an exchange with Peter Rawlins. <laughs> And it was just a train wreck. It was an absolute train wreck. It, it, humorous on all on all kinds of levels. But rather than focusing on Peter Rollins, I want to focus on uh, Lawrence Krauss. Now, he has recently written a book called uh, A Universe from Nothing. A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing, which is kind of like the – 
the the major thorn in uh, atheism's side. It, you know, how do you explain why is there anything rather than nothing? And because if you believe their ideas, if you're a true scientific atheist, uh, like theoretical physicist Krauss is, then you've got to come up with some kind of why is there something rather than nothing? And how did something get here? And in his book which is actually kind of fascinating, a universe from nothing, he literally argues that nothing is not nothing, but that nothing is something. And that's how the cosmos can be spawned from the void, uh, <laughs> is because nothing is actually not nothing, but it's actually something. <laughs> oh, gosh. Anyway, <laughs> just... So... That that kind of I know you're all looking at you're I know you're looking at your iPhone and you're and you're thinking Roseboro what are you talking about I know I know I know okay so here's the point that I'm trying to make okay and that's this a lot of people fall for this and let me explain it to you this way okay and well I'll give you the metaphor first and then I'll show you how it plays out in this exchange with Krauss and with Rollins because again it's very entertaining but um. All right, so let's pretend, because, you know, I'm losing weight, um, that I'm at the gym, and I have a tragic treadmill accident, because it's it's winter now, and cold weather has set in here in uh, central Indiana, and so I'm not able to actually walk outside, because I really don't like the cold, and so I've been going to the gym, and I've been walking on the treadmill, and let's say that for some reason, my focus collapses and I end up falling on my face and being shot out the back end of the treadmill and into some other you know, exercise equipment. And as a result of that, I really hurt my knee. Okay. Let's just pretend. Okay. So um, now I've got an injured, I've got a sports injury, if you would. And, and, and so would I go to somebody who specializes in sports medicine and injuries of that type? Or would I go to a gynecologist to have my knee looked at? And you're thinking, okay, is this a dumb, what kind of dumb question is this? Of course you wouldn't go to a gynecologist. You're a dude and they don't specialize in sports injuries. Right. Exactly. Okay. So here's the idea. Okay. And this is where a lot of people kind of fall for things. Okay. Um, a physicist is a physicist um, based upon the discipline, the scientific discipline that he's engaging in, qualified to tell us whether or not there's a God. Answer, nope. And when a physicist makes a claim that there is no God, they're not making a scientific claim. They're making a theological claim. Mm-hmm. And so, in other words, I'm not going to be going to Lawrence Krauss or Richard Dawkins or uh, a scientist, a chemist, a biologist to find out whether or not God exists because that's not within their discipline. Science, you know, these types of science, physics and things like that, um, physics, chemistry, biology, these are all based on observable, repeatable things, right? So uh, a physicist, you know, is, is what he does, you know, you know, what he deals with here is observational science. That's what he should be doing. Although Lawrence Krauss is a theoretical physicist, not sure exactly how that works. But the point is this, is that science deals with reality and what it can observe and what it can repeat. 
since you can't take the universe and stick it into a test tube and you know and basically repeat the big bang or however the universe came into existence um you are not, uh, you are not left with an option of scientifically testing any theories regarding how the universe came into existence you are left with only speculation not repeatable science so when a scientist actually starts making claims regarding God, they are outside of their discipline, and you would not go to a physicist or a biologist or a chemist to answer the question of whether God exists because that's outside of their discipline. That's like going to a gynecologist, for me, going to a gynecologist to have a, a knee injury looked at. That doesn't make any sense. That's the wrong thing. And a lot of people fall for this because, oh, they say, well, he's a scientist. He's he's a PhD in chemistry he would know if there's a god no he wouldn't because his discipline doesn't give him the tools to answer the question he that's it physicists and all scientists are left with observing and trying to figure out how the visible universe works how how life works and it all it's all based within the system they have no ability to get outside of the system because they themselves are within the system it's an observational science so for them to make the claim well i've you know i've never seen god in a test tube or i've you know i you know anything like that they are no longer making a scientific claim they're making a theological claim and most people don't understand that and as a result of it they think well he's a scientist it's got to be true Uh, no Again, you don't go, you know, dudes don't go to gynecologists for knee injuries. You just keep that in mind. I know it's a weird metaphor, but I hope, hopefully it'll stick. Now, what we're going to listen to is Lawrence Krauss. I, just for the humor's sake, you don't have the opportunity, I'm not going to play it, to hear what Peter Rollins said at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, but I will let you hear Krauss's response to Peter Rollins. This lecture because it's kind of humorous, but then he'll get into the things that I want to pay, I want you to pay close attention to, and so we'll focus our attention on Krauss. So here's uh, Lawrence Krauss, theoretical physicist, responding to Peter Rollins's complete gibberish and uh, postmodern gobbledygook. Here we go. I asked um, Peter to speak first, so I might have some basis of understanding what new religion is. Um, <laughs> But anyway, uh, yeah, now this is where I have common ground with Lawrence Krauss. I've heard uh, Peter Rollins speak many times. I've actually had several face-to-face conversations with Peter Rollins, and his response is, well, it it jives with my experience as well. Uh, um, So let's see. Um, (laughs) Let's start with new atheism. Yeah, he's going to change the subject. He's going to, he needs to talk about new atheism because he can't talk about Peter Rollins' new religious ideas. That, I, I know, is an inappropriate term. <laughs> I don't understand what new atheism is. It's, it's the same good old-fashioned atheism that's always been there, which is not a belief system and not something that cares about what people believe. It's, or it's, it's how they think. And in particular, atheists don't spend their time attacking beliefs. They just say... It, it, that they will choose to accept things on the basis of evidence and uh, not doing so is foolish. And- okay, now that's his comment. So new atheism just basically says that it accepts things based on evidence and and doesn't accept 
things that don't have any evidence because they claim that it's foolish. Now, this is rather fascinating because it's not that there isn't evidence for Christianity. There is. However, it doesn't lie in the realm of physics per se, but it is there. Now, let's take a look at what the Bible says about atheists, by the way. Um, Did you know that the Bible says that there's really no such thing as an atheist? Mm -hmm. It's absolutely true. Okay, Romans chapter 1. I'll start at verse 18, and let's read so we kind of get an idea here. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So. Here's the idea. Scripture says that uh, what Lawrence Krauss is saying here is not actually true. Okay, What Scripture tells us about Lawrence Krauss is that he knows that God exists. He absolutely 100% knows that God exists. And as somebody who's studied the cosmos, it's plain to him that God exists. But you know what he's doing? He's suppressing the truth in unrighteousness. He's suppressing truth the truth, and unrighteousness. And as a result of it, he's playing a game. That's what atheists do. They play a game. And here's how the game goes. Well, I don't see any evidence for God. And when you you present them evidence, ah, that's not enough. I, you know, nope, I'm, that doesn't meet my threshold. And so here's the deal. It doesn't matter how much evidence you present them. No evidence is going to convince them because convincing them isn't the problem. They're suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. They're dead in trespasses and sins. And so, you know, presenting them evidence isn't actually going to do anything because it leaves them as judge over God. Okay? So the problem is not that there isn't evidence. There is. Okay? Now, creation is one of the evidences for God. Romans chapter 1 makes it very clear. But there's another set of evidences for the existence of God, and this goes into the discipline of historiography. Plain and simple. Now, Keep in mind, Lawrence Krauss is a theoretical physicist. He's not a historian. But the strongest evidence for the existence of God lies in the discipline of history. Here's the idea, that I know that there's a God, okay? Well, let let, let me kind of rephrase that. Uh, Number one, I know there's a God because God has made it plain to me that there is a God, all right? And as far as evidence is concerned, there's very good evidence that God exists and that it's not just any old God, but it's Jesus who's God, because Jesus, 2,000 years ago, was born of the Virgin Mary, claimed to be the God of the Old Testament in human flesh, proved his claim by rising from the dead on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and if you can find the bones of Jesus Christ, you can totally overthrow Christianity. So the idea is is that you know there's all kinds of evidence for God. There's evidence for God in creation. There's evidence for God in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, and it's objective, it's verifiable, and falsifiable. It's great evidence. But see, the thing is, is that somebody like Lawrence Krauss, just from his point of view as a theoretical physicist says, that's not really evidence. That's not convincing to me, you know, and stuff like that. And so he continues to play this game that, that, you know, those who believe in God believe despite the evidence, but that's not true. 
people who believe in God don't believe in God despite the evidence. Okay, they believe in God and there is evidence because God has made it plain to them in creation, in the incarnation. There is evidence, but atheists suppress the truth and unrighteousness because they're playing a game. That's what's going on here. So let me let let me play another quote for you uh, from Lawrence Krauss so you can kind of get the idea of you know his his points of view. What I don't understand is why you want to replace a religion that doesn't work for one that's based on angst. Okay, now this is him talking about Peter Rollins, who, who wants to, you know, rethink Christianity. He's got this new religion that he's come up with, and so he says Christianity doesn't work, and you're going to replace Christianity, which doesn't work, with a new religion that's based on angst. And you'll have to hear what Rollins said to kind of get that point. But let me, let me continue to the relevant portion, though. It doesn't. It doesn't seem to me that it's any different. It's the same old-fashioned religion, namely believing things in spite of facts. You didn't. You t- okay, so he thinks that religion is believing things despite facts. But see, the thing is, is the Bible makes it very clear that he's not believing despite the facts. That's the, the rude thing to keep in mind here. And then there's a little bit more. Listen to this. Um, I don't believe. <laughs> I don't believe anything. I look at stuff and say, well, is that likely or unlikely? Based on evidence, I can test the hypothesis. I can choose if I want to walk out the 10th floor of a building on, on, in a window and see if I'll fall or I can, you know, I've tried it out beforehand and assume I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to fall, so I won't do that. Mm-hmm. So there it is. He, he makes these decisions based upon evidence. Well, then listen to this. Problem is not that. The real problem is that most people, many people who call themselves religious, use that religion as a basis for actions which are silly. Because they're based on fact, uh, on non-facts. They're based on something that isn't true. Okay, now listen to what he says is based on something that isn't true, based on non-facts. Despite the fact that Scripture makes it very clear that God has made it plain to Lawrence Krauss that he exists. Okay, God, he, Lawrence knows that God exists and he's suppressing the truth. And there is evidence to support the existence of God that's outside of his discipline, in the discipline of historiography. But listen then to what he says. I only base things on facts. Now, so he puts out this, I'm the scientist, I'm objective, I, but he's not. He's suppressing the truth and righteousness. I believe in reason, I believe in evidence. And so he's going to switch, though, from making a scientific claim to making a theological claim. Here we go. So they're against gay marriage because gay, being gay is a sin. It's not a sin or unnatural. It's not unnatural. But that kind of... That kind of basis governs the actions of the world. And if you're concerned... Okay, so he just said that homosexuality is not a sin. Well, wait a second, wait a second. You just said you only make, you only make decisions based upon evidence. But you just made a theological claim. That it's not a sin. That's not a scientific claim. That's not something you can verify or unverify using the discipline of physics chemistry or biology that's a theological claim and so that's the sleight of hand that goes on here is that when you look to somebody like Lawrence Krauss who is a theoretical physicist to tell us whether or not God exists again that's like a dude going to a gynecologist with a knee injury it doesn't make any sense and when he speaks theologically he does so under the guise of being scientific and objectively uh, being objective and only listening to reason and yet he makes these dogmatic theological statements without any evidence whatsoever 
Do you see the inconsistency and in how scientists like Lawrence Krauss and Richard Dawkins and others, they play the same game. They'll sit there and put on the, uh, on the scientific lab code and claim to be objective and all about the evidence and then turn around and get outside of their, their scientific discipline and make theological statements, statements that their scientific discipline is not equipped to answer cannot answer and yet they're playing this game but because I'm a scientist I can make a theological claim that the god doesn't exist that you can you know you can't you can't play you can't have it both ways you don't get to be inconsistent that way all right moving along yeah that's right this is our new music for our history channel secrets of the bible revealed segments right rem's losing my religion i think that's a great suggestion by a listener for these uh uh, these updates that we're going to be doing on the history channel secrets of the bible revealed uh which is really nothing more than um a a liberal makeover right let's say a history channel makeover of tired old liberal arguments i mean it's it's like i said yesterday it's the pimp my uh my my ride of of bad liberal theological arguments they're not even you know, they're not even theological arguments now <clears throat> for this for this next segment to kind of give you a clue as to why you shouldn't trust the bible why it's just complete nonsense uh, according to the history channel um, what if i told you that um, i i just read a news story that there are people out there who are calling they're activists if you would that are calling for you know strict measures to be put in place for the companies that build passenger ships and and they're saying that there's corruption that there's bad building techniques and that people have lost their lives because and that something has got to be done right now to save people from the schlocky horrible bad uh, b- shipbuilding designs and stuff like that for passenger liners. And you're thinking, wow, okay, well, it sounds important, right? And then if you were to say, well, and their proof that we've got to do something now is a news story from the early part of the 20th century when the Titanic sank on its maiden voyage. That's, that's proof that we got to do something now to uh, stop uh, bad shipbuilding techniques and save lives. And you're thinking... Uh, uh, what? <laughs> we got to do something now because the Titanic sank a hundred years ago. Really? Um, 
Okay. Yes. You know, you're thinking this is kind of crazy. Well, that's what you're going to be experiencing here. This is kind of something similar and along those lines. Why should you not trust your Bible? Well, are you ready for this? I don't know if you've known this, but the oldest copies of the New Testament do not contain the long ending of Mark and the story of the woman caught in adultery. And you go, uh, I know that. And you go, and you know why you know that? Because if you have a modern translation, when you get to the end of Mark, there's a big note right there in the page before you start, before you keep reading at the end of Mark. And it says, the most ancient and reliable manuscripts of the New Testament do not contain the next verses that follow. This is not a problem. <clears throat> this is not a problem for us. And the woman, uh, the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery in the Gospel of John, again, it is no mystery. It is no secret that the uh, that that story does not appear in the oldest and most reliable manuscripts of the New Testament. This is not news. We've known this for a long, long, long time. And of course, if you've studied textual criticism, this is one of those things that comes up. You know, it's like, okay, we we look at, you know, the ancient manuscripts and we look at the manuscripts and how they've adapted. There's clearly, there's ways of explaining all this stuff. But see, the way the History Channel tells the story, the way the History Channel tells the story, well, there, it's like they're breaking the news. Oh, man. Oh, you Christians out there, you better get out the white flag and put your hands up. We got you surrounded here. So let's listen into um, how the uh, History Channel's Secrets of the Bible Revealed uh, handled these two very, very groundbreaking revelations um, regarding the long ending of Mark and the woman caught in the act of adultery. Here we go. All four Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, recount how Jesus was crucified and his body buried in a tomb. They also describe his appearance to the women mourning at his grave three days after his death. The original Gospel of Mark ends with chapter 16, verse 8, in which the women go to wash Jesus' body, and when they get to the tomb, they see that the tomb has been rolled back. It's empty. Now, this is real simple. Um, the the liberal scholars make such a hubbubaloo about that. But when you read through the Gospel of Mark, throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus constantly you know, t- tells that he's going to die and rise again from the grave. This is throughout the Gospel of Mark. Jesus says this many times. So... You know, why is the, does the Gospel of Mark end so abruptly? Answer, I have no idea. I have no clue. And if anybody who says they know why the Gospel of Mark ends so, so abruptly, um, you know, if they tell you why with any, you know, and with, with certainty or whatever, they don't know what they're talking about. Okay, there's lots of theories as to why the Gospel of Mark ends where the Gospel of Mark ends. But keep this in mind. What happens is in liberal scholarship, they like to say, well, the Gospel of Mark, that was the first one. And see, because it doesn't have the long ending, it doesn't have any resurrection appearances. <gasps> you know what that means is that the other Gospels, that's a, a later addition, a mythological you know, tweaking of the story. 
Um, no, actually, the Mark was not written first. We The earliest church fathers wrote about this and tell us that Matthew was written first and that Matthew was originally written in the Hebrew language and there were translation, the people translated as best as they could, okay? So we know from people who really had like the right historical vantage point, they were living in the first century, that Matthew wrote first. This is what Papias says. So, um, but, so keep this in mind. We don't know why, the, the, uh, why Mark has such a short ending. We don't know why it ends abruptly. The best speculation I've heard on this, and that's all it is, is speculation, is that the idea is, is that we know also from the church fathers that the gospel of Mark really was the preaching notes of the apostle Peter as he would go out and preach and proclaim the gospel and the good news. And the best speculative theory I've heard on this, again, that's all it is, is that it ends abruptly because from that point, the eyewitnesses who are there when Peter is preaching, they get up and they say, and I was there, I saw Jesus and stuff like that. So the document itself was written in such a way uh, that once, you know, once that portion, once it got to the point of the resurrection, the, the eyewitnesses who were proclaiming the good news would then get up and say, and I saw Jesus, and, and, and they would recount their stories. That's probably the best speculative theory I've heard, but there's, that's, there's no way of knowing. There's just no way of go- knowing. And does the fact that Mark ends so abruptly prove that Jesus didn't rise from the dead? No, because it ends with, you know, the short ending ends with the, uh, the women at the empty tomb. The tomb is empty, and they're afraid. Okay, why? Because he's raised from the grave, and when you read the Gospel of Mark, throughout the Gospel of Mark, Jesus says he's going to die and rise again. This, this Again, just read Mark, and you'll say, oh yeah, there's Jesus saying he's going to die and rise again. Exactly. So <clears throat> the, uh, the, the liberal scholars here for the History Channel here, notice the dramatic music. Oh, listen to this. <gasps> this, is, this is really earth-shattering stuff. No, this is, this is about as earth-shattering as, you know, you know somebody breaking into a, you know, you know, to, you know, to a hockey game. Right now it's wintertime, you know, so let's say you're watching hockey tonight and all of a sudden newsflash, Titanic sinks. You know, it's <laughs> like, no. And the gospel actually ends with verse 8, in which Mark writes, The women went away from there and said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Yeah, that's right. And everybody knows that. Anybody who's bought a modern translation of the Bible in English, NIV, ESV, NASB, there's a note right there on the page that the earliest manuscripts do not contain verses 9 through whatever. <laughs> well, all oh, you Christians, you need, to, you need to wave your white flag and surrender, though. It says, the women ran away, said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then it just stops. But why would this story come to such an abrupt end? Some scholars believe it might simply be that the original ending was written on a page that was deleted or destroyed. Mm, written on it. So uh, scholars say it was written on a page that was deleted or destroyed. Oh, some nefarious conspiracy is afoot. Has anyone seen this missing page? Does anyone know what that missing page contained? Nope. So, I mean, I, I, I put out a theory here that I know it, it was erased during a, a lunar eclipse 
when Elvis was beamed down from the mothership. You see, that, see, my theory is just as good as their theories, right? very old theory was that Mark's gospel was in a codex and the back page fell off. Well, that's a little bit, you know, a little more neutral there, right? You know, he wrote, he originally written in a codex and, you know, it wore out and then it just fell off, you know. Sure, that's a possibility too. The reality is nobody knows why. It was many, many years later that a later redactor very likely unsatisfied by that ending in the Gospel of Mark, added eight more verses to the Gospel of Mark in which you have this resurrection appearance. You're right, and we know this from textual criticism. This is not some new revelation. This isn't some secret of the Bible that's being revealed to the world right now. Everybody's known this. In fact, again, you don't believe me? Open up your modern translation of the Bible. Go to Mark chapter 16. Go to verse 8. And then look, there's a space between verse 8 and verse 9 with a note that says that the earliest and most reliable manuscripts in the New Testament do not contain verses eight, uh, 9 through 16. Hey. So the earliest scribes of Mark added fresh endings on. One of them became very popular, the ending that you see in the most Bibles today. Yeah, that's right. And what they also are not telling you is because we have thousands of manuscripts of the New Testament, um, we can tell, you know, you know, they're they're making it sound like, well, you know, if they added eight verses on the Gospel of Mark, what else do they add? Well, the reality is this, is that uh, looking at textual criticism, they didn't, you know, there's, there's not a lot of passages that have disputes like this. Um, there is one other, and that would be the story of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Uh, but, you know, there's there's a couple of other segments, too, where, you know, you can tell that later stuff got, you know, got squished into the uh, the in, into the text itself. But there's very little of that going on. And we know this because of the thousands of manuscripts that we have. Textual criticism is our friend in this sense. And it's no secret regarding the long, you know, the long ending of Mark here. But, oh, there, there. Oh, yeah. Wow. You can't trust your Bible now. You might say that the story of the resurrection actually emerges as an interesting literary story, partly because people are so dissatisfied with Mark's story. Ah, so now there's their theory, okay? Because keep in mind, their theory is, is that none of the Gospels were written by eyewitnesses, which is patently false. And they're saying, oh, the, the resurrection, that's just something that somebody stuck in because they were dissatisfied with the you know the short ending of the Gospel of Mark, and that therefore bleeds over then into um, the um, the resurrection accounts that are in the um, in the Gospels. But <clears throat> let me take you to a document that was written in fifty two A.D. fifty two A.D. First Corinthians chapter fifteen. Paul writes, Now I would remind you, brothers of the gospel, that I preached to you, which you received, and which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. By the way, even liberal scholars have no problem dating 1 Corinthians to 52 AD. For I delivered as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried and was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas and to the twelve, and he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and the other apostles, last of all to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's right. So here we got in 52 AD a creed. It's kind of inserted into this uh, text. This this actually has the uh, 
the 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 form of a, of an ancient creed and it, it the confession is is that Christ died for our sins and was raised again on the third day this is what it says so no what the, what they're saying is patently false you know absolutely patently false they're they're basically playing games uh due to the fact that uh you know we don't have a long ending of mark Is it possible that the account of Jesus' divine resurrection, one of the most important tenets of Christianity, was the consequence of a missing page? No, it's not. Read the rest of the New Testament. John is written by an eyewitness. The Gospel of Matthew is written by an eyewitness. It's by Levi Matthew, the tax collector. This is just duplicitous on their part. But this is how the liberals operate. You know, they see any weakness and try to exploit it for all that it's worth. And, uh, you know, that's what they're doing here. Many scholars now believe that as Christianity became more popular and more powerful, it became common practice to edit the New Testament. Really, um, textual criticism rules that theory straight out. And again, keep in mind, we can reproduce the entire New Testament minus eight verses from the writings and sermons of the church fathers all prior to uh, 260 A.D. So, I mean, this is just patently false, patently false. Textual criticism in the writings of the church fathers and their extensive quoting of the New Testament makes it possible for us to know exactly what the New Testament said. And no, there was not some, you know you know, practice within Christianity to constantly edit and change and morph the story. Textual criticism has proven that this theory of theirs to be straight up patently false. In ways that would support evolving religious beliefs. But deliberately altering the Bible could also have deadly consequences. Particularly if the changes ran afoul of traditional thought or political agendas. Yeah, and their implication there's they're kind of they're taking modern day Roman Catholicism and its power structure and politics and projecting it back in history. Now here's their accounting uh, their account of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Again, they're breaking the story the way this is being told. I mean, if, again, newsflash: Titanic hits iceberg and sinks. I, this is going to change your world here. Let's continue. Here we go. Probably the most familiar story to people from the Gospels is the story of Jesus and the woman taken in adultery, John chapter 7 and 8. In the Gospel of John, there's this really charming story of the scribes and the Pharisees bringing to Jesus this woman that they call... And this is Candida Moss. Um, yeah, um, boy, she, oh, this is a really charming story. She's, she's got to break it to you, folks. Um, yeah, it's not in the oldest manuscripts. Really? That's I know that's what it says right there in my Bible, right there when that passage begins. It says this story is not found in the earliest and most reliable manuscripts of the New Testament. Caught in the act of committing adultery and they're going to stone her, which is a punishment for adultery. And Jesus says, let the person who's without sin cast the first stone. 
This is a beautiful story about Jesus. It's in every movie ever made about Jesus from Hollywood. And it wasn't originally in the New Testament. It was added to the New Testament by later scribes. It's not in our earliest manuscripts of the New Testament, but the King James translators didn't have access to these early manuscripts. They translated the story, put it into John chapter 7 and 8, even though originally it wasn't there. Yeah, that's right. The best manuscripts that they had at the time had that story in it. And since then, thanks to archaeology and textual criticism, we now have very good old manuscripts of the New Testament. This is not... These again, they're 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 acting like they're breaking this story, and oh, I hate to let you down. It's this it's this darling story, about, but it's just not in the original. We all know that, okay. Yet the History Channel is telling the story as if oh, yeah, this is just another hit against the Bible. And keep in mind, Christianity doesn't say that any copy of the New Testament is inspired, but that the autographs are inspired. And thanks to textual criticism, we are really, really, really close to knowing what the autographs said. And we know what is original to those autographs, and we know what has crept in through different uh, you know, manuscript lines, if you would. But man, the, what they're doing over at the History Channel, again, this is a hit piece against the Bible, and... It's so one-sided, so unfair, and like I said, these are old, tired, completely debunked liberal arguments, but the History Channel's given them a makeover. Pimp my liberal argument. That's what this is. They put a bright, bright, shiny new set of wheels on this, gave them a paint job, and off they go out there to destroy the faith of millions, you know? It was a traditional story that people told about Jesus, but it wasn't in the Gospel of John. It probably never happened at all. Yes. Thank you, Candida. We know that. So, I mean, there, there you go. That, that's kind of this, that's segment number two to kind of let you in on the duplicity of what's going on over there at the History Channel with the secrets of the Bible revealed. These aren't secrets. Everybody knows this stuff, and they've known it for a long time. Long, long time. But, you know, of course, <clears throat> the History Channel, they're doing the important work of breaking the story so that uh, they can set people free from the bondage of believing the Bible to actually be the Word of God. All in the name of science and fair, objective uh, history telling, of course. <clears throat> right. All right, we are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian, or follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to end the week off with two good sermons. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. High Ridge Christian Radio Theater presents Death of a Salesman. Are ye a salesman? Why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. 
Keep more of your money in your pocket. Hi, Chris Rosebro here. If you're planning to travel anytime in the near future, then don't pay more for airfare, hotel rooms, or rental cars than you need to. Longtime Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheap O Air can save you a Tijuana taxi load of money on all of your travel needs. Plus, Cheap O Air has a seasonal promotional code for all of our listeners that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheap O Air's already low prices. Visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, and then click on the banner, and then book your travel today. Again, that's piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. That was a great happy birthday song. Okay, Charlie, time to open up your presents. All right, Grandpa. Uh, let's see what we have here. Oh, yay. I've always wanted... It's a Star Trek uniform. But it's red. What are you trying to say? It was the only colored wool fabric I had. Try it on. It's, uh, really itchy. Do not fear, nerds of the world. Never again will you have to deal with poorly made gifts and cheap knockoffs. Just tell your antiquated relatives about ThinkGeek. At ThinkGeek, you will find a vast selection of creative and quality products to tickle your every fancy. Celebrate your love of all things nerdy by going to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash geek. And by clicking on the ad banner, a portion of your purchase will go to supporting Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. Okay, we're back. We're well into hour number two here at Fighting for the Faith. We're going to end off the week with two good sermons. Both of them from Faith Lutheran's Church in Capistrano Beach, California. I'll set that up here in just a second. Newsflash! The Titanic's hit an iceberg! Quick! We've got to reform the shipbuilding industry! the ugly we review it all here at fighting for the faith we're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service today's sermons come to us both of them from faith lutheran church capistrano beach california and we'll be hearing two different sermons one by pastor ron hodel the second by pastor jeremy Rody. the first sermon is entitled lawlessness and it is based upon second thessalonians chapter 2 verses 1 through 8 as well as 13 through 17 i'll read the text before we hear the sermon second sermon is entitled Blessed Are Who? by uh, Jeremy Rohde, and it's based upon the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, which is the famous section known as the Beatitudes. So, let me go ahead and kill the music here, 
And let me read for you the uh, text that forms the basis of Pastor Hodel's sermon entitled Lawlessness. Here's what it says. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, to not be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Amen. Okay, this is the text that forms the basis of the first sermon we'll be listening to. Here's Pastor Ron Hodel and his sermon entitled, Lawlessness. In the name of Jesus, amen. Our text for this morning comes from the second half of our epistle lesson from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. So far, our text. The wild, wild west. I'd hum the tune, but you probably already know it. Remember that TV show of yesteryear? James West and Artemis Gordon. That was lawlessness when I was a kid. Great show. Today, it's AMC's Hell on Wheels. Thomas Durant and Cullen Bohannon. That's lawlessness on steroids. The wild, wild west of lawlessness. I love westerns. Lawlessness has always been a part of our story from the very beginning. Well, not from the very beginning. In the beginning, everything was good. But lawlessness crept in the very moment Eve gave ear to the serpent and Adam, knowing what was right, chose to ignore it altogether. Or at least... Ignore it in this particular situation because it was convenient. Ever since then, lawlessness has just been the way we roll. Lawlessness isn't chaos. 
Chaos is the goal of lawlessness. To undo the order of creation and reintroduce disordered chaos into the world. But chaos has to begin with lawlessness. Lawlessness is that sin that's at work long before a place or a nation or a family or a church descends into chaos. Lawlessness begins as soon as people reject the part of the law, whether it's God's law or a nation's law or the law that a company or even a family lays down. Discussions of law and lawlessness lie at the heart of many of the debates in our nation today. Has God established a law that is valid for all people and for all time, a natural, absolute law that never changes no matter where you go? Or do people make up law along the way? Is law what is is law and what's right based on what the majority decides? If God makes moral law for all people for all times, then we know, for instance, when life begins and how marriage is defined. We know right off that murder is wrong everywhere. It's wrong in Nazi Germany. It's wrong in the Middle East. And it's even wrong in the shopping centers, airports, elementary, junior high school, and high schools across the United States. We know that stealing another person's stuff is wrong, period. But if society makes the rules up along the way, then anything goes. All you need are the votes. As soon as you reject one part of God's law, you've arrived at lawlessness. The only question now is, to what degree? Like the kid on the playground who doesn't like the way the game is going and decides to change the rules so that things are more in his favor. To the politician, to the boss man, to the laborer, if you're willing to unilaterally change the rules you don't like, you've arrived at lawlessness and trouble's coming. It happens in the realm of government when the tyrant says, I will rule in such a way that benefits me and my party. I will favor some and disregard others. If you help me, I might help you. If you get in my way, I will destroy you. That's my law. That's lawlessness. It happens in the realm of marriage when an unfaithful or abusive spouse announces by word or deed, I'm setting aside the vows that I made before God, the agreement I assented to. I'm going to do what suits me, not what serves you or helps us. That's lawlessness. It happens in families. When a child decides the fourth commandment says that I should honor my parents, and I'll do that, I'll honor them to their face, but I'll go behind their back and do whatever I darn well please. That's lawlessness. It happens in the church, where God's word takes a back seat to human reason. Lawlessness. It displays itself in school hallways, business boardrooms, on the I-5, the 405, and the 91 for sure. It's found in the back rooms filled with cigar smoke and wherever bullies roam, whether that be on the internet or in NFL locker rooms where the in crowd gets to say what's cool. That's lawlessness. 
But lawlessness isn't just out there. It's not just the other guy who's lawless. I hate it when they are, but I'm also the lawless one. And so are you. Each of our sins is the child of that old part of us that bids us defy God, replace God with ourselves, and live by our own rules. That's lawlessness. And lawlessness kills. When we live lawlessly toward others, it crushes their spirit. It destroys relationships. It causes untold suffering and broken hearts. You know that's true. Because it's happened to you. Worse though, lawlessness kills our relationship with God. But you know what? We kind of like lawlessness. At least when we get to be the lawless ones and everybody else is hamstrung by a law that binds them. Lawlessness appeals to us because by nature we all want to do what we want to do. And God's law rubs our old Adam the wrong way, just like it rubbed the father of lies and lawlessness and rebellion the wrong way, who, by the way, is headed to destruction. But that's a whole nother sermon. As appealing as lawlessness is, however, it's deceiving. It deludes us into thinking that it's actually going to work when, in fact, it doesn't work out at all. Not everyone can have his own way. And when that happens, it becomes chaos. You and I are numbered among the lawless ones. You know when you've used lawlessness to your own advantage. I know when I've stacked the books against others. We know when we've changed the markers, fudged the records, moved the chains repositioned the ball, misrepresented the truth, tampered with the evidence, doctored this, falsified that, deceived the spouse, tricked the boss, cooked the books. But it's worse than the wild, wild west of lawlessness. It's damning sin, plain and simple. And it kills and destroys forever. And it's killed and destroyed us too. I don't bring this lawlessness up in order for you to evaluate your performance, which hasn't been that great all all along the way here. And I can say that because you know the same is true about me. I don't bring this up in order for you to evaluate your performance, pull out one of those pieces of paper in the pew in front of you or maybe the back of one of those visitor cards or something like that and scribble on it a list of repairs that need to be made to your life. Patches that need to be written to tweak your inner operating system because it's worse than a performance thing. Something that with a good college try, you can have up and running by the end of November. Maybe there are some things you need to fix. Me too. But life, real life, life in Christ isn't living on the hamster wheel of endless earning and providing and proving and maintaining and managing and maintenance. 
where all you can see are your own feet. I bring this point up to show just how broken it really is. Life, that is. Life with God, that is. I bring it up to point out that deep down, we kind of like it broken, so long as the brokenness favors us. Which, by the way, isn't a half-bad definition of sin, being turned in on ourselves, selfish and self-centered. Our lawlessness is evidence that our lives are broke. So broke, they can't be fixed. Not by you. Understand me correctly. Not by God. They can't be fixed. They have to die and be raised to new life, which is exactly what God has done. The chaos of lawlessness, the chaos, the disaster of your life isn't the end of the story. God gives us his law, not with the end game of showing us who's the boss. His desire is to save us, to bring you, and to keep you in his kingdom forever. He declares his law to show us our lawlessness, to cause us to despair of who we are and what we've done, which when reflecting isn't very hard, by the way, at least for me, to get us to cry, Lord, have mercy, because in our brokenness, that's, that's the only cry we really have left. Having made that clear, he declares to us the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, our Savior. And that's what he declares to us in the second part of the epistle this morning. Rejoice, you broken, lawless ones. You are beloved by the Lord, and he loves you not with a love that you have earned by your stellar performance. He's loved you with a sacrificial love, a selfless love, a love that cost him, not you. In the words of our text, God has chose you as the first fruits to be saved, not as a second-rate inferior part of the harvest that barely makes it in the door. No, he has poured out salvation upon you so that you might be his beloved children. That's what he wants for you. And how has he done this? He's done it by giving you the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. He did it not by giving you what it takes to clean up your life enough so that you can become declared acceptable. He did it completely outside of you. He did it by taking your lawlessness, my sins, the chaos we've made of our lives and the lives of others. He did it by taking all of that to Calvary's cross. And there on the cross, he suffered the judgment one deserves when their lawless, chapped hides get caught. And because he's taken our sin upon himself, he now shares with us his glory. Before God, you are clothed in Jesus' righteousness. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin and lawlessness. Rather, he sees you clothed in the righteousness of his son, who said to his father, thy will be done, and then went to the cross for you. By his word, 
The Lord has declared this good news to you. He calls you to salvation. You're in, not out. By this word, he makes you holy, declares you so, sanctifies you, sets you apart by the work of the Holy Spirit. By this word, he gives you faith, belief in the truth, trust in the promise that Jesus' death and resurrection has worked your salvation. And by that faith which he gives, you have the certainty of God's love toward you, whether you feel it or not, because he said so. You have the eternal comfort that deliverance and salvation are yours forever. You have the good hope, the certain hope, that God will not forget you because Christ has redeemed you and he has made you his own in your baptismal water. There in those waters, knowing you couldn't be fixed, he has killed you and made you alive again in his son. And so now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, sermon number two, which is, oh man, this is probably one of the best sermons I've heard on the Beatitudes in a long, long time. Um, This is based on the Gospel of Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, and it reads, Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you." Here is Pastor Jeremy Rohde and his sermon entitled, Blessed Are Who? Here we go. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Some guys have wealth, some guys have good looks, and some guys have a great personality. But he has all three. Rich Handsome, interesting, you would think he'd be vain, but in fact, he's quite spiritual. The only thing deeper than his wallet is the depth of his soul. The only thing more attractive than his looks is the kindness of his heart. The only thing more dynamic than his personality is the resume of good deeds he's done. So who is he? The man you wish you were, the man you wish you married, maybe. The man you're raising your son to be, or the man you hope your daughter marries, maybe that too. But who is he? 
This ideal man, this man who has it all, he's blessed with every earthly blessing. But he's the poster boy of hell. He's the flower that's here today and dead tomorrow. He's cursed as cursed gets. And yet he's the epitome of all that we call blessed. For our beatitudes are a little different from those of Jesus. Blessed are the rich in spirit who go skidding into the afterlife shouting, Wow, what a ride! For God Himself must give them a high five. Blessed are those who live, love, and laugh because who really wants to mourn? Blessed are the beautiful and strong for the weak and meek get ignored. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for fine dining. For they shall post pictures of their meals for you on Facebook. (laughs) You're welcome. Blessed are the superficially just and the externally moral, for they can always speak ill of those other people and be right. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they have no need to be too religious or go to church every Sunday. Blessed are the peacemakers. Those who disregard what's right and go along to get along because, after all, that's how you make sure everyone still likes you. Blessed are the rich and handsome, the intelligent and powerful, for they shall have whatever they want. And blessed are you when you aspire to be like them and raise your children to be like them. This is the gospel of the world. Thanks be to us. And this is why what Jesus preaches on the mount always has been and ever will be so very strange to our ears. Who is this who blesses the opposite of what we bless? It's not the rich in spirit, Jesus' names, but the poor in spirit. Blessed are they. It's not the pathologically happy, he names, but those who mourn. It's not the mighty he names, but the meek. It's not those who have righteousness, but those who hunger and thirst for it. Blessed are they. It's not the superficially just, but the truly merciful. Not the externally pure, but the pure in heart. Not the warmongers or the people pleasers but the genuine peacemakers. Not those who go along to get along, but those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Blessed are they. And blessed are you. But not when people celebrate you and honor you and give you credit for all that you have done. No, Jesus says, blessed are you When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. How very different our beatitudes are from His. 
He blesses what we curse. He casts down what we exalt. Our lives, all about being more and having more. His life, all about emptying himself out. How very different we are from this God who chooses to come to us in human flesh. For though we have human flesh, we choose to act as if we were gods. We crave the worship and praise of men to be exalted, celebrated, and served by those whom we also freely judge. For what could be more godlike than to judge others by our own divine decrees of what's really right and what's really wrong? We open our lips to speak, and we expect not, others not only to listen, but to do. For the wannabe deity in us all, it's all about control. It's all about getting our own way. Wealth and good looks, intellect and personality, morality and spirituality, all become ways of getting what we want. We twist these blessings from heaven until they make us twice a child of hell. And that's why our Beatitudes are so different from those of Jesus. We bless that which we think makes us more godlike. And he blesses instead that which makes us more manlike. Behold the great reversal. For we men who aspire to be gods, God becomes man. For we who obsess over wages, home improvements, and self-improvements, nice trips, good meals, a golden retirement, for we who obsess over riches, God becomes poor. For we who idolize appearances and beauty, God becomes one with no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. For we who put the highest value on intellect and strength of personality, God chooses instead the foolishness of the cross and the weakness of death. For sinners who aspire to be God, God becomes a sinner. In fact, the sinner. You may think that you have sins. You may confess them and struggle with them. But the truth is, there is no sinner but the God who hangs dead from the cross. He who knew no sin was made sin for us. That is the gospel. That is the guarantee. All your sin is His. And therefore you are called His saint. For every saint, great and small, it's the same. Those innumerable saints gathered around the throne 
those whom you have known, those who loved you, or raised you, or taught you, those who were given into your life, if even for a short while. Not a single saint, great or small, can boast anything save for Christ our Lord, His cross, His blood. So open your lips this day and receive the blood that makes even the foulest clean. Remember this day as little Thomas Hensley was baptized. The day that God chose you and washed you and made you a poster child of heaven. His own blood-washed, blood-bought saint. Rejoice in Jesus' beatitudes as He blesses what men curse. For by the same reversal, prostitutes and sinners enter His kingdom first. The blessed one hangs from the cursed tree and therefore blessed are you for all eternity. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Oh, man, great sermon. What would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Click on the subscribe button, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>